What's up? Hey everyone. My name is John. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways I'm trying to make good use of that. I uh, I mean, let's be honest, everyone is on a journey of trying to experience life and maybe even faith more and more or in more and more beautiful or diverse or mature ways and that's what this is. I uh, wanted to take this episode not really to uh, try to talk about a certain subject, although I've got one coming up on Moses, and then another one that has to do with how to think, or what does it mean to, well, you'll see. And I wanted to take this one to talk about how a week ago, I just returned from driving down to Kentucky to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where I stayed for a silent week with the monks in Kentucky. And I think I just said in Kentucky twice, but it was a good time. In fact, it was an amazing time. And the reason I went there was because this is the same monastery or abbey where Thomas Merton, who's one of my favorite authors, used to live and write. And to be honest, his grave is also there. So I went and visited that. But what I would like to do is I have my journal here in front of me and I would just like to recap, I guess, or or help you experience some of what I experienced there, if that's all right. So if you're listening to this, no matter where you are, hopefully you can start to feel as though you've gleaned something from even my time down at the Abbey in Kentucky. Does that sound interesting? I hope so, because Thomas Merton is one of my favorite authors because, well, I think people say that he's an Enneagram 4 wing 5, which means he's very emotive, very much okay with talking about the deep internal workings of a person. But then since he's 5, he's also an observer and really loves to name things well, so as a writer, he found a way to name the interior life so well. And he was a Cistercian monk, but uh, the Cistercian movement, they were started in France. And they were specifically started by uh, a few people, but one of the most important or the most well-known is a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux, who spoke and wrote very much about intimacy and romance with God, so much so that he gave 88 sermons on the book Song of Songs in the Bible, which is a very romantic, poetic book. Um, And he didn't even finish, apparently. He passed away before he could get all the stuff that he wanted to get out of that book uh, said to his people. But the Abbey of Gethsemane is technically, uh, it's called a Trappist Monastery. Trappist is because in France, there's a town called Trap, where they took the Cistercian movement and they said, we want to do this really intense. And so the Trappists are just known as very intense, strict observance Cistercian monks. And they love silence. And probably this one's going to be a lot about silence. And... 
that's a little funny too, right? Because you're sitting there probably listening to this, or maybe you're walking, and I'm going to be talking about silence. I recognize the irony of it all. So I have my journal. I'm just going to go through some of the things that I maybe wrote down, some of the reflections that I got out of the week. But uh, yesterday I was getting coffee with my parents, and they even said that they noticed a different kind of calmness after returning from oh, a silent week in the rolling green hills of Kentucky. I have to say, uh, I've done silent retreats before. I think the longest one I've done before this was just 24 hours. So to do a full week of not talking felt rather actually not super intimidating, but it did feel odd at first. Probably the first two days, I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? But then by day three, you just got into the rhythm or routine of it, and then you start to realize, my gosh, we fill our lives with so much talk, 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 talk. So on the way down, I drove through Catawba, Virginia, and camped out overnight on the Appalachian Trail and then went to McAfee Knob for sunrise because that's a beautiful spot to watch the sunrise if you ever have the chance. But then I got up and, and drove the rest of the way to the monastery, which even as soon as I walked on the property, you could tell that there was a calmness that doesn't exist in other places. It was so interesting. And in fact, even in my approach, when I saw it from about a mile away, I got silent in the car and I turned off the radio and approached in silence and then unloaded my car in silence and checked in using only a few words. But it was really, really incredible. And some of this comes back to uh, Thomas Keating, who also was, I believe, a Trappist monk. He said, Silence is God's first language. Everything else is a poor translation. Isn't that good? And then, as the week went on, I started to have a, a momentary thought. I guess kind of two. One was, a lot of people like to say that God is, you have to listen to the silence because God is in the silence. I was sitting there in one of the services because they have multiple each day. I thought to myself, what if God is the silence? And the silence is all around us, yet we deafen it out and we shove it out by the way that we talk and make all this furious noise. And No wonder so many people feel as though they have never really experienced God or the divine when we are all frantically running away from silence. Now, here's a good question for you. That was the first thought. Maybe God is the silence between all of our words that we say. But here's the second thought. What if, well, hold on. What sounds happened before the Big Bang? I mean, I guess before the Big Bang, there was just silence. And then God spoke, let there be light. Which means silence 
is the pretemporal sound of God. That for an eternity before the Big Bang, there was the sound of silence. And so silence is legitimately the sound of God before creation happened. Now, that just led me to think, like, oh my goodness, we, uh, we deprive ourselves of an enormous gift when we always turn on the radio, when we always put on a movie or a TV in the background, when we feel the need to listen to music. What is it that makes us shun or run away from silence? Well, I have a theory for you. It's that, and I believe I've said this before, but silence tends to magnify whatever's on the inside. And it was so interesting. On my very last night, I went up to this hillside and I was watching the sunset where you could look forward and you watch the sunset and the, the monastery is behind you. And uh, there was a car that drove up, actually a truck. And this guy was inside. He was drunk. He was in the passenger seat, but he was belligerent. And he just started cursing people out. And in fact, one of the caretakers was there. And this guy was just, mm, you, mm, you, mm, you, you're a, mm, mm, mm. And it was striking because in the silence of a monastery, we heard this echoing, rage-filled screaming at this caretaker. And uh, other people were a little intimidated to walk down, but I, I just reached down, grabbed my bag, put it over my shoulder, and I started walking down the hill towards this car. And this man was in the passenger seat, started taking his beer cans and throwing them at this caretaker and told him very uh, angrily to pick up his beer cans because whatever. So I walked over and I actually picked up the trap, the the beer can and made eye contact with this local town drunk and he half started to yell at me in just the same way and then I don't know if it was a girlfriend or a wife but she was in the driver's seat she picked him up and they drove off and uh, I told the caretaker not to worry about it he kept apologizing he said that this guy's done this before but I said it's all right it's okay have a good night. Uh, I said I would take the tr the beer can and throw it out. But this man, that what if on that was only 10% of his anger and rage. What if on the inside there's a whole 90 other percent of fury and rage and embarrassment and shame and this was just the way that he could handle evacuating those those internal experiences was to unload just 10% of it on someone else. And so as I walked back to the monastery through the parking lot and then back into the building, all I could think about was silence tends to magnify what's on the inside. And maybe a lot of us run to turn on the radio or listen to music or even a podcast or maybe watch movies in the background while we're at home because we can't handle the sound of silence because it, it reminds us, be like, oh my gosh, 
I was 10% impatient with someone else because I'm 90% impatient with myself on the inside. And so silence tends to make us keenly aware of what's going on on the inside. And so sometimes it's easier to not confront what's going on on the inside by covering up the silence. But you know what? Maybe God is in the silence and God wants us to confront some of those things because he lets the silence echo or magnify whatever's on the inside of us so that we finally get around to dealing with it. You see, silence might actually be a legitimate gift. Silence might actually be divine, and yet we don't think of it as divine. We just think of it as the absence of sound, which, sure, you could say it's the absence of sound, but maybe silence is also just a pregnant pause for however long before transformation happens. I just said that on a whim. I kind of like that. Maybe silence is more of a pregnant pause that can happen just before transformation. And so when we think to ourselves, why is it that we never improve as persons? Well, maybe it's because we never allow for that pregnant pause to reflect on what's on the inside and maybe what does God need us to confront. So that's, I mean, silence. That's uh, one of the reflections I got. And uh, let me leaf through some of my papers here. And uh, I do have some last comment that I would like to make. Uh, but let me first leaf through this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the first day I was there for quite a lot of uh, napping <laughs> because I was pretty tired. But I... I see here on uh, Tuesday, August 20th, I wrote down that a lot of us, there's a few things here, wow. There's a lot of us that have a very frantic spirituality. A lot of us, we're not, we're too rushed. We don't know how to do that pause. There's, there's no input here. It's just, I have also come to realize these things. Number one, we have a frantic spirituality. Two, this is an opinion, but it seems as though the Protestant soul is impoverished in its understanding of reverence. Maybe there's a possibility that we can tend to be a little too celebratory. Not that you shouldn't celebrate or be joyful, but um, the understanding of reverence is really necessary. Um, I wrote down that I, I think I need to start writing a heck of a lot more. But then also, uh, I actually wrote down that the world is toxic. That we are so frenzied and anxious, it should be no wonder that some of us are depressed or suicidal or that we've got teenagers with severe issues already showing at 14, 15, 16 years old. And uh, honestly, this week kind of reaffirmed for me that a mature and a proper approach to religion, maybe even to Christian spirituality, is legitimately the hope of the world. That when people 
were to if people were to actually engage this faith, not in a cliche or surface way that says, I'm a member of this tribe because you fulfill all of its customs, but in reality, allow yourself to be formed by it, to be shaped by it, to let it legitimately change your values that you value, reflection and reverence and silence every so often, to learn how to turn off or get rid of things that don't mean too much because they impoverish your soul. Man, what if religion really is not at all what Karl Marx said, which is the opiate of the masses, but what if religion is actually the hope? Because religion, and I know I've said this before, but religion is religio, meaning it reattaches, religio, ligaments. It's proper approach to religion reattaches you back to the right things. I don't want to say everything that I wrote down. I got to try to be pick and choose because <laughs> some of this I feel like is just for me. Uh, one of the things that was really cool though, and then I guess we can kind of finish with this, was uh, there was a, a, a friar or, or a brother there, or one of the monks, his name is Carlos from the Philippines. And towards the end of one of his talks, on the first two nights, he gave a half hour presentation just to help get people in the right mindset for the week, just to give people, here's how we do things. And then, but he was punctual. He was on the dot, showed up on time, and it was done at the half hour. And he walked out. It was um, really a cool thing to hear a man from another part of the world living in Kentucky with a different accent than I do talk about Jesus in his own way. And there was also a, a sense of authority to it because he was speaking from his own substance and character. You could tell that the words he was saying meant something to him. But towards the end of his whole talk, he quoted Karl Rahner, who was a, a Jesuit who helped to formalize some of the reform of uh, Vatican II, which revamped the Catholic Church in the 1960s or so, tried to make the church more accessible to more people. But one of the things that Karl Rahner said, and Carlos, Brother Carlos finished his whole talk with it, was, the Christian of the future must be a contemplative or he won't exist at all. I love that. I thought that was so profound. However, I raised my hand and uh, no one else raised their hand for questions, but I, I had to. I said, Brother Carlos, I know that quote. I've heard that before and I've actually said it to numerous people since, but I've understood that phrase differently. I thought... The quote is, the Christian of the future must be a mystic or he won't exist at all. Not a contemplative, but a mystic. And very calmly, he said, those are one in the same thing. I was like, oh, that changed my view a bit because I always understood them very differently. Contemplative is just someone that reflects and thinks deeply. But a mystic, 
I understood a mystic as someone who experienced God in all things and through all things and found all things in God, you know. But a mystic for him was the same thing as a contemplative. So man, I had to go back and rethink a number of things. So I went to some of uh, Thomas Merton's writings that I had brought with me, some of my books that uh, I had underlined numerous times. And I also started doing a little bit of research. And I found out that the early church, yes, used the word prayer, but then the early church by the second century in Greek started using the word theoria or theoreo in order to talk about prayer. It's also the word where we get theory from. If you have a good theory, you've got a good sight about things. So actually by the second century, the early church started to associate prayer with looking. And then when the church started using Latin a bit more, they started using the word contemplatio, which is where we get the word contemplative from. And so when we say that monks are contemplative, what we're saying is that they are incredibly prayerful. But they don't use words. Remember the emphasis on silence. A contemplative is just someone who looks deeply at things, not talks about them, not even engages in words describing certain things because some things are beyond description, right? But to be a contemplative means that you learn how to have a long, loving look at things and people. And uh, I think it's Mechtild, oh, what's her name? I I wrote it down. Let me find it. Mechtild of Magdeburg. (laughs) She was a mystic and a contemplative, a Christian. But she said, the day of my spiritual awakening was the day I saw. And I knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. That's so good, right? Let me say it again. The day of my spiritual awakening was the day I saw and knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. Now, what's very interesting, she didn't use the word conversion. Or there's certainly a sense that she could have very well been in the church or learning about Jesus for a pretty long time before that spiritual awakening when she saw all things in God and God in all things and knew that she did. Because you can certainly be a part of church culture, yet never be spiritually awakened. To never really become a contemplative who learns how to pray at all times by giving a long loving look at everything and everyone because you see God in all things and everyone. There's a, it sounds odd, but there, there might be a maturity of faith that we don't talk about very often. There's one level where you know the words. There's another level, though, when you stop using words and you just learn how to observe and even to exist as prayer. Now, that's that's something completely else, but it there's something 
deepen it because Paul does say in his letters to pray without ceasing. Now that probably means don't be talking all the time, but instead let your whole life be a prayer. Let your whole life be contemplative. Let your whole life be that. So there's a few things that I really took away from this week, but I think if I could give a closing thought, it's that doing a week of silence and calmness and realizing that um, doing those things are beneficial. I mean, I always knew they were beneficial, but one of the things that was most profound that I learned last week was that this is possible. It really is. And, And by this, I mean, it's possible to have a calm life. That's not anxious or constantly frenzied. We've bound ourselves up with so many things that we think we should care about. And then we even listen to news and TV and watch commercials and see billboards and look at magazines. All these things that are so surface level that that keep us anxious, that keep us worried, that keep us fearful. And yet for a week to turn off all of those things and have none of those inputs to not get any of that. Oh my goodness. It is completely possible to have a calm and unfrenzied life. To be constantly prayerful. To not run away from silence, but to maybe learn how to experience God in the silence. I think one of the things that happened this week was being down in Kentucky at the Abbey of Gethsemane just reaffirmed very deeply for me that Christian spirituality has so much depth and richness, so much more than we can realize until we start doing it. Because you can be told about it. You can be taught about it. But until you start diving into it for yourself, you have no idea, no idea how good it can be to actually live it out. So my, um, my Merton pilgrimage uh, was, was just great. I want to go back at some point. You're supposed to really only go once a year because they have so many requests but I will absolutely go back and I'd encourage you to go check it out and maybe even set up your own retreat. And if you want, I put it up on Instagram, some pictures that I took and I I did like a hashtag Merton pilgrimage and you can check that out if you want. But otherwise, this was kind of fun just reflecting and looking back. I obviously have more insights that I wrote down, but I'm gonna keep that stuff for me. So hopefully you took something positive from this. Maybe you heard a line or a quote that stirred you. But until next time, uh, y'all are wonderful. May grace and peace be with you.